This is the Baltimore City Paper Podcast coming to you from the City Paper, and I'm your host, Baynard Woods. Last summer, Baltimore street rapper Young Moose was arrested by Detective Daniel T. Herschel only days before Moose was to open up for Lil Boozy, the noted Louisiana rapper, at the Baltimore Arena. Young Moose's manager rushed to raise bail and get him out for the show. But Detective Herschel showed one of his videos that shows Moose with, reportedly with guns and drugs to his probation officer and charged him with violation of probation, and Moose was not allowed to leave jail or play the show. A year later, he's just released a new mixtape, Moose Leroy, The Last Dragon, which features a remix of his hit song, Dum Dum, that actually features Lil Boozy. And this comes just as Moose is finally about to go to trial, along with much of his family, on the original drug charges stemming from last year. City Paper's been covering the story from a variety of angles, as a First Amendment issue, as a music story, and also as one saga in the ongoing legal battle between police and residents of East and West Baltimore, And so for the first segment of this week's podcast, we brought in a panel of writers, including Dee Watkins, Lawrence Burney, and Brandon Soderberg, to talk about Young Moose. Later in the hour, we'll switch gears to talk with Dee Watkins about his new book, The Beast Side, Living and Dying While Black in America. back with the second episode of the City Paper podcast. I'm Baynard Woods, editor-at-large, and we're here with a lot of City Paper contributors. We have Lawrence Burney, also the founder and editor of True Laurels. Uh, we have Dee Watkins, a uh, contributor and a writer all over the place, a columnist at Salon, and uh, he'll be both a panelist and later on in the show a guest. We'll be talking about his new book, The Beast Side, and we have the managing editor, music editor, and film editor, Brandon Soderberg, and we're going to start out talking about the new Young Moose album, or... or uh, yeah, album, I guess. Hard to know what to call recorded things these days. Um, but uh, Moose Leroy, <laughs> The Last Dragon. Uh, so, And you have to go over at this point still to the OTM store um, over on East Monument Street in order to pick it up. So you can go over there. So you may not have heard it as we're talking about it. Uh, we'll play a little clip uh, at some point in a little while. So uh, maybe, Brandon, you want to start talking a little bit about... Uh, just talk a little bit about Young Moose and, and sort of why you were were interested in this record. Yeah, so I guess it's his, it's his big deal record in a way. Um, it comes after, I guess, really a year or so of uh, a lot of interest in him as both a recording artist and uh, by the police as well for a number of reasons. So, and, it's, and he's also recently signed to Boozy's, Little Boozy's label. Um, a lot of his problems sort of started, I guess, when he uh, was supposed to be part of a little boozy show at the Royal Farms Arena, and then he was uh, arrested, I guess, two or a few days before, stemming from, like, a July 22nd charge. The show was on the 15th or the 16th. I'm sorry, I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, And then he ended up being in jail for a while, and so it's almost exactly a year later, and the record came out that week on it came out on like the eighth or the ninth so it's almost exactly a year later he's essentially signed a little boozy's labeling it has this major project i mean there's the big song from his last tape 
was uh, Dum Dum, and Dum Dum has a boozy remix, which is the second song on the tape. And uh, they sort of revamped the whole song, and it's it's it, it's it's a big deal, and it's kind of strange, I guess, to talk to what Boehner was saying about uh, how you can access it. You can get it at a few other places. You can get it at, like, the, sta- the mixtape stand at Dolman, <clears throat> one of the weird clothing spots. Yeah, Pop G. Yeah, yeah, there's a few places else, but you do have to get a physical copy of it. You cannot download it as far as I can tell. Some of it's on YouTube now, but um, but it's interesting. This is sort of his big moment, and it's still um, sort of a small moment in a way because you got to still buy the tape in the store. Like, I don't know why that Dum Dum remix isn't, like, all over the blogs and that sort of thing. So We'll have to talk about the store because that's fascinating. Yeah. yeah, let's talk about the, the Dum Dum remix because it, it's fascinating. You were about to say something, Lawrence? Yeah, I just want to say, like um – yeah, it may not be a major thing nationally, but locally, this is about as big a deal a street artist could achieve, in a certain sense, because Boosie is a is a hero. You know, like we've been listening to him since maybe 2004. I was 14 in ninth, eighth grade, so seeing an actual artist from here gain that respect from Boosie, especially somebody like Moose, who you would think maybe an artist like Boosie might stay away from because people compare Moose to him so much. But I think Boosie is just a, a guy who who can recognize the potential and, and see the positives of somebody wanting to follow his footsteps. No, I agree with Lawrence. Boosie in the hood is a he's a na- he's a national hood treasure. Like you know, <laughs> you know everybody loves Boosie. Like it's almost hypnotic. Um, even down to the haircut. Like even down to the Boosie fade. Yo, know, even down <laughs> to the haircut. So um, it's it's definitely a big thing. And um, you know, hopefully that Boosie affiliation enhances the business side too. Because I agree with what Brandon was saying. Like we need these songs on the blog. We need these songs to be able to be downloaded. We need these things all over the internet. Even if you want to sell your project, at least put them on iTunes so people can purchase it. Um, I haven't had a physical CD in a long time and I'm old. You know what I mean? Like in the last physical CD I've had was a Moose album. Right. Yeah, it's because we don't have a choice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it just, I mean, I understand it. Like D was saying, I understand why he wants to sell it. But at the same time, you can't even, you can't control it because somebody will upload it in a matter of days. If they if they want to put it on YouTube, it'll be on YouTube. They'll take it down and somebody will put it back up. But I think putting some of his music out online would help his brand grow. Because I've seen people in the region listen to him. I see people in D.C. listen to him on Instagram. Like, they'll screenshot a song. People in Philly. So he's Virginia. So it's bubbling. I think it could get bigger. I mean, it is. It's an insane fucking strategy for, for 2015 that you, you open up a physical store. You don't have a website, but you have a store. And like, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I love it. You, know, you gotta love it. it. You gotta it's love amazing. It. You gotta like, love that it. is, I can't think of anywhere else that that would be. And it, it seems to be a really cool thing that his, um, you know, his fans and like the kids go to the store and stuff. But then it gives the cops a place to go. And and what like four times in the last over the summer, the cops ended up raiding the store right. and um, are coming to the store to arrest him. So it's a real weird, um, a weird thing for him to to be doing. The one um, thing that is interesting in terms of strategy, which matters when you talk about hip hop is, um, that the last OTM, OTM three tape came out on like physically in like November. And then it didn't really come out until like April. So in a way there's, if, if, if you can still sell 
CDs, which he obviously fucking can. It's not. It's maybe it's not a bad business strategy. If he's selling those for what? What they ten? Is that what we bought it for? Like ten bucks? Like yeah. ten bucks? I bet he's selling a lot of those. I'm not gonna assume, and I don't know. I, yeah, but anyway, like I think he's selling a I lot of them. I hear cars around the city a lot, so people are buying them. Yeah. I would assume. I mean, I'm sure. They are getting bootlegged, too, because I went to my old neighborhood when OTM3 came out, and I was in the corner store being sold. So people are burning it and selling it at, like, probably local corner stores, too. So I just, I'm excited about that language being spread to so many different people. Like, Dragon, um, as far as, like, right. to my, from my knowledge, it's a Baltimore, it's Baltimore slang. Yeah, um, the dumb I'm language, right, dumb, so. dumb, dumb, dumb is definitely Baltimore language. So it's cool to see um, people in far different places adapting to the language and some of the things that we use here mm-hmm. and, um, and owning it and taking it as their own. It's, it's good because the city has a lot of flavor and a lot of, you know, super original. And, again, we haven't, we haven't had, you know, that, that wave of, mainstream artists come through and have that you know tremendous amount of industry success so it's cool to just see that it it, it can happen i think in a way moose and um moose and school that have really started a serious wave over the past like year and a half two years because it's rappers popping up Uh Uh, i stay plugged in i look at i'm I'm on instagram a lot because that's really their main platform where they're sharing all their music all their news everything it's um gmg tato yeah, Max, yeah. YGG Tay, um, CP Baynard. <laughs> <laughs> the mixtape's popping up, man. <laughs> it's, it's rappers popping up a lot now when they're getting actual attention, which is that's mm-hmm. that's a beautiful thing to see because when I was in high school, which was six, seven years ago now, it's crazy. Um, we didn't even have a rapper we cared about in Baltimore. Like we didn't respect Mully Man or. Boss man was just like a. We didn't care for those rappers. We we noticed them, but it wasn't somebody that looked like us. These rappers look like the kids in Baltimore look now, and they speak in the same slang. That's traveling to places. People like Shy Glizzy are coming mm-hmm. here to hang out. Meek Mill is coming here to hang out. So I think it's it's on the brink. Scooter's in the studio with Game right now out yeah. in L. A. Yeah. Which is which is interesting. I don't and know. How, Bill, I don't know how I feel. I don't know how I feel about it. And he was in Billboard Studios too there. in Atlanta yeah. a couple of days ago. So it's happening. GMG Tato, he just got like a Shoe City endorsement. Yeah. yeah. So so that that issue of the the slang and spreading the language. I mean, it is so particularly and, and distinctly Baltimore. And some of it, when I I first heard like. Whoa, whoa, ski. I'm just, I mean, it becomes kind of through the, the song, but I was just like, what the fuck is that? That's not really a widespread. Like, whoa, whoa, ski. That's some shit. Moose, I think Moose and his homeboys might just say that. For each other. But whoa, it's funny that Drake blew up uh, whoa because we've been saying whoa for a long, Forever. long, long time. I mean, it obviously started in New Orleans with Wody. And yeah, but, but whoa here was more like a, a greeting. I mean, you you could call somebody whoa, but it, it was just interchangeable. Like you pick up the phone and say whoa, instead of saying hello. So seeing Drake do it is it's funny. I mean, it's I guess it's good for everybody. But or Quentin Miller, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of these one of these guys. <laughs> but then it seems like he's talking about guns in it oh, yeah, in, the, yeah, yeah. in the song, and and which would be useful thing to have a lot of kind of slang for. Right. Um, but I mean, that seems to be one of the really weird things about the the this record is that, and one of the really powerful things about him in general is the way of like 
the music and the words in a way don't fit each other. So like right. like that song in the pocket rocket song oh, yeah, yeah. are both like really catchy, bouncy yeah. songs about guns, seemingly. Yeah. Whereas then the the other like all of the songs that have hardcore lyrics that, that will be like you know right. depressing or something are like really <laughs> bouncy, mm-hmm. happy songs, and it, it's a uh, it. it Gives you this emotional thing that's cool. Yeah. Right? I think it's like it's kind of like a '90s record. Like it starts out with a mob deep freestyle, quiet storm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That one track, Rollin', that's like very like '90s rap and bullshit kind of track. There's mm-hmm. a lot of like it's it's shifting away. Again, interesting that as he is closer to boozy, he's shifting away from sort of going after that like no limit cash money like New Orleans style. And it's more of a '90s record. It feels cohesive like a '90s record. It's like R&B tracks on it. Um, and so in that way, and that's sort of what 90s rap was, was super catchy songs about violent shit. Like that was like, New, it's like right. a New York rap record by way of Baltimore, which you could probably speak on this more, both of you. But like that was a thing in the 2000s, I remember, with a lot of the Baltimore rappers that were around where they were all sort of like going for New York. Or there's like a moment where everyone sort of sounded like state property and you know, all the Philly mm-hmm. guys. And we sort of gotten away from that. Moose is like a really good fusionist in terms of that stuff. He's able to figure out a way to sound like Baltimore, but also sound like recall New Orleans. In this case, like sound like a New York rap record without it being like a New York rap record. I think it's his age because I I think Moose is maybe, what, 22? Yeah, he's about 22, 23, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I'm I'm 25, and I would say I came up in a time where the earlier part of my life, the early 90s, and maybe the late 90s, Baltimore felt like an East Coast city. That's really how I interpreted it. But once I hit, like, middle school when I was, I was like, uh, 12, 13, it shifted. Like, we started listening to 3 Six Mafia all the time. We listened to Lil Wayne and his squad up tapes all the time. It, a lot of uh, New Orleans music. So it felt like Baltimore shifted from East to South somewhere in the early to mid-2000s. And if that would make sense because Moose's would have been 10 12 so that's where his his he has a mix of it but it, i would say it's more southern though yeah i think of the dudes he up under like Maine and them and i know like i feel like they definitely delivered that 90s east coast culture like mm-hmm. he was hand delivered that his father big kev and him like they delivered that to him right. but um I, I i was around for that shift too and then then there's another part of me and i want to know what you how you feel about this but i feel like baltimore is also a city divided on rap like, oh, I know yeah. some East Coast, New York, Baltimore dudes that won't listen right. to anything else. And then I know dudes who will make the arguments for the South music all day, rightfully so. Because, you know, the South dudes, they they always come through with the best beats. Mm-hmm. But then, like, um, the East Coast dudes are, like, um, you know, tend to be more lyrically right. advanced. But and just, and going back to some of the things you said about language, I think about um, just... You know, I'm, I'm, I consider myself to be like a junior historian, <laughs> but like how that coded language has always been important, and uh, just that whole African American experience in general. Um, you know, you might have some slaves, and um, you know, and uh, the slave a slave might escape, a slave named Darrell might escape, and you know, the overseer might hear him telling his friend Darrell escape. He a bad boy, you know, he bad, and then. Um, the overseer might say, oh, these guys are good guys because they think Darrell is bad for escaping, so they won't escape either, even though they're saying he's bad in a good way. So that, that coding language is interesting and in how um, a lot of hip-hop artists in Baltimore and outside of Baltimore just do so much to evolve these, you know, language and, 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 and words and things like that. 
Yeah, it's one of the things that's really cool on this remix of Dum Dum, I think, is the way that it's so defiant in a way, almost even like the, the way that the white uh, punk guys, when they first started using the word punk as a word, and it's just like at that mm-hmm. one point when he's like, I'm dumb, I'm dumb, I'm dumb, I'm dumb, and it's just like, <laughs> you know, it's just so defiant of like, yeah, I'm, I'm out and, and it's cool. Yeah, I mean, I just think um, the cool thing about Baltimore and the chance that we have as far as rap goes, is that we're in this limbo. Mm-hmm. Nobody else is quite in that. Like, we are east and south. I mean, we're technically southern because we're under the Mason-Dixon line. So I think we can, if we, if somebody figures it out, we could speak to both. Like, we could speak to both worlds. I, I remember um, when I moved to New York when I was, like, 17 or 18, before then I never really considered myself from the south until I started hanging around people from there, and they told me that I sounded country. <laughs> but, and before then, and I listened to Gucci Man and Project Pat, and they didn't. They didn't accept it. Like it took a while. It took like a year for them to actually want to listen to it. So I think that's the unique thing about about Baltimore. And nobody sent, the the accent is so distinct. I think that I think that'll catch on, and and people can always trace it back to the wire, which is annoying, but it's convenient. Yeah, people know a Baltimore yeah, accent, yeah. man. It's like, especially like when I get upset, that's the first out of town. That's the first thing somebody says, oh, "You from Baltimore? You from yeah. Baltimore? You must be from Baltimore." <laughs> so, so we've been talking mainly about the music stuff, but but Brandon mentioned when we were first talking that that we've written a lot about some of the Detective Herschel. Um, with the Baltimore Police Department, one of the guys who has a lot of the brutality settlements against him has seemed to have a real um, vendetta against Moose. When I went to, he had a court date a few weeks ago, and it ended up getting postponed. But when I was there, um, his lawyer told me that Herschel had come and raided their house again, sat there for hours one night, took $800 in cash, and then left um, and no one ever wrote up anything. There was never any warrant. They didn't give a warrant. And so it seems to be an ongoing thing with him and the police. And when we were at the store and we asked Moose about um, how he was dealing with that now and if it affected his lyrics or anything, he's very, very much on the, you know, being a free speech warrior. You know, that, that um, you know, this is my First Amendment. I can say whatever the fuck I want to say. And, and so really pushing that sort of thing. And, and how do you guys think that's, this beef with the police and and um, what what does that look like for the the future for him? For he's got another court, the court date's coming back up on the twenty third, so right about the time that this is going to be coming out. Where does this play and and where Moose is at? What do we have to do as um, you know? It's our job to document what's going on um, in the city. We all write and we all contribute, but what do we have to do to? stop things like that from happening what happens to the art world or hip-hop in Baltimore in general if you know if we allow a person like Herschel to destroy it like what is he like it's just so many I, I'm from that area so much stuff going on but you got this vendetta against this kid like you know that doing that first you know one of the things that upset him more than anything is they, they put the cuffs on his mom like you you know like seriously it's crazy like so I, I want to know like what can we do to like how do we document this in a way to um, – because it's a very true thing. You know, him taking $800 and leaving, it doesn't it's, – it's, it's a shame for me to sit here and say and not be surprised. Like, oh, he did that? Right. No, it's business as usual. Yeah, I, I think the, the most um, infuriating part about it is that it's pol- – like D said, it's police that do that 
all the time. It's only news because it's Moose, and Moose is a prominent figure. But they just look at if Moose makes it, that makes them look bad. I think it, that's that's all that it comes down to is, is is hate, is jealousy. If he breaks through and makes it into being a, a star, that makes them look like they didn't do their job. So they're going to keep fucking with him until something happens or until he just breaks free. Does it help him in a way, this this uh, relationship with the cops? I don't think so. No. I don't think so because it's an unfair distraction. Like, you get no extra credit, you know, for being harassed by a police officer. Everybody gets harassed by police officers. It's, it's just, you know, you have some fame behind you. So I don't think it helps at all, man. I wish this guy, why is this guy even employed? Like, what was it? Was the number, was it $600,000? Yeah. It was something crazy. It's like, so like, and, 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 you know, everybody sitting at this table, we, we all pay taxes. I got to pay for that. Like, I got to pay for that. Like, that's crazy. And he was one of the guys that we saw on the front lines of during the uprising. Herschel, they had out there, um, you know, someone who, who has such a reputation for brutality that they have as a face who's, who's one of the commanders and, and on the front lines uh, during the uprising. So. Um, yeah, so something I wanted to add is I think that we talked about this a little bit after we left the store the most recent time, which is there's this myth that that being arrested or fucked with by the police if you're a rapper builds your street cred. And that's not – I don't think that's true. I think what it is is that the nature of being a rapper and being black in America is you're frequently arrested. And so why not turn that into some kind of positive and highlight it and call attention to it? And I think that's what Moose has sort of been doing is turning it. It's, if, it's, if it started as this art about his life and him sort of turning his life into these songs, he's now started to turn this other part of his life into songs as well. And so I think what it's important also to really stress is that there's so much against Moose just for the simple rap, the simple fact that he's a street rapper in 2015 um, my sort of rant that I've been saying for a really long time really sort of peaked with Rick Ross, who's sort of just known as, like, not authentic, which is fine. But that street rap became a liability in the mid-2000s because for a number of reasons, the, all the money going out of street rap, just the music industry cratering. And so anyone who's a liability is a problem. Lil Wayne, oh, he's doing this or he has guns, like, fuck him. He goes to jail. T.I. goes to jail. Gucci Mane goes to jail. They all go to jail. And then they bring up – and then Rick Ross comes up because he's, like, the – Disney-fied crack rapper, you know? And so what you start to see is that that becomes a liability. So it's not only a thing of, like, Moose is getting, his life's getting fucked with, but it's making it harder. A label is not going to sign him. I think it's interesting, for example, that there was a while where he was sort of being courted by 300 ENT, which is has Migos and Young Thug and some other people, mm-hmm. Fetty Wap. And he was sort of being courted by them, and that either fell through. Or maybe Moose wisely decided to go with Boozy. But either way... That was that would have been sort of a chance for Dum Dum or one of these singles to go up, and he either moved away from that or they moved away from him. And so it's really important to think of like street rap is like the the mainstream. It doesn't get on the radio. It's sort of shifting back a little bit. Yeah, it's like underground now. But it's underground. Yeah. And so and and I think it's underground also, which ties to all this is that street rap is like our transmissions from the drug war and the business is not interested in that and if you can get finally get violence out of rap all that rap becomes about buying shit and fucking women and that's like ideal for like the like white jews who run record labels i'm saying like that's what it's about i mean the 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 thing you were talking about about transmissions from the drug wars uh uh 
you know, all of us, we're in the Sons building right now and, and um, as we're having this conversation, and the six officers just had a first hearing today um, for the Freddie Gray trial, and we're all sort of checking our phones, looking to see if there's, there's shit going on outside right now. But everyone in, in this room, I feel like, has been baffled by all of the, or in this building, has been baffled by all the, the fucking violence this summer, of the, the two most violent months in the city, and, and so the, the news isn't dealing with that well. We, we as reporters aren't dealing with that well, but like this record does seem to speak to that in a way. It's almost backwards that ending with the, the protest song, and then it moves from there to the, 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 what the summer has been after the uprising stuff and this, this extremely violent summer. Um, but it, it really does seem to be transmissions from that. That's why we need, like, we need people like Moose bad. Like, we need them because we need these multiple perspectives. We need the intellectual perspective. We need the artsy perspective. And we also need someone to report live from the streets. Um, you know, he has access that, that, that many of us could, don't have. You know what I mean? Especially, like, um, even, like, older dudes who, um, who write about some of these things, like myself. Like, I'm, I'm not in the middle of the culture as it evolves every day. Yeah. You know, if I go down Bradford Street right now, he's probably out there. So, you know, um, this is, and this is the problem with a cop like Herschel having a personal vendetta against a person like Moose. Like, we need we need that perspective. We need it. It's important just to preserve history or to even let us know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And that's funny. Um, that, that became like a kind of like a constant Romano in the, the NWA movie when they were showing them getting interviewed and the the hoopla around them when they came out it was you know we're reporters mm-hmm, and in a mm-hmm. sense that's that's what Moose is I mean people he really resonates with the youth of Baltimore because he's going through exactly what they're going through um, the Freddie Gray situation didn't spark Moose to speak on police brutality or what's going on in the streets. He was already doing that. Exactly. He was already being more active <clears throat> speaking against that than the quote-unquote conscious rappers. He's actually in it. So to to have him around is, is valuable. So the th- those months where Moose wasn't around, it, that took away from not only his career but us learning what was going on because now that we're seeing it. I think there's kind of a way to because I think when we start to talk about him as a reporter, we start to feed into the cops argument that this is all truth. And I think what's really great about rap music is it's just all of these unresolved tensions between, you know, truth and fiction and all that. And and so it's interesting that Moose is it's useful in that way. It's like it's really is like the wire. It's like a slightly warped version of reality. And so he can both report on these things that he's experienced or seeing. But he can also twist them, and sometimes that means he's there. They become like bigger than life, or sometimes it means they become like he can sort of get really novelistic or whatever, and he can sort of explore all these things. He has the license of fiction and the license of like experience, and that's really why rap is really important. I was thinking why it's so confusing and intimidating for people, and why the courts can't understand that just because he raps about these things doesn't mean it's absolutely true or it, or that it could be used as evidence which it's been used as evidence against them which is crazy and then you got a person like Herschel who contributes nothing to culture or relevance or history or anything it's just hate and mediocrity like the king of being regular you know what I mean like yeah. he contributes nothing so why again why is this guy still employed and why why is my tax dollars going towards him like I can use them 
you know, for other things. I could buy a cool hat like Lawrence. You know, if I did had to if I did had to pay Herschel. <laughs> Seriously, I'm not even joking. <laughs> Discussion of Young Moose and his role as a reporter of what's happening on the street naturally leads us to a discussion of Dee Watkins' new book, The Beast Side, Living and Dying While Black in America. The book's out this week and deals with many of the same issues as Moose Leroy. Watkins is a frequent contributor to the paper, and several of the stories here, including one about Young Moose, were first published in City Paper. Early next year, Watkins has another book, The Cook-Up, a memoir chronicling his time learning on the streets and in Baltimore's university. of people who agree with me and feel like I feel on a lot of issues, but I will be very pretentious to sit here and say that I'm speaking for everybody. Like, that's not really fair for one. And then for two, there's so many people doing great work. I'm just one guy making my small contribution and staying out the way. Like, I don't need a, a trophy, a plaque, a crown. I don't need, you know, like, I don't need to be knighted. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I just want to, you know, I want to work with young writers and I want to get young people who never thought about writing like myself at one point to get into it. Because, you know, not just because we need them, but because, you know, it's, I mean, it's cool and it's fun. And I think, you know, there's some there's some great storytellers floating around this city who would never even think about doing that as a career. So um, I think we need their voices. I don't I don't want to be the one guy to talk about, you know, everything black. I just want to be one of the guys to go to, but not the only one. Um, do you, Do you feel like because of your content, because you talk about like your life in the street, that you you find yourself like the subject of um, like a, a white fetishism? Like people are obsessed with your story. Yeah, because you know it's not even a. And sometimes when people approach me about doing articles on some of the things that I do, which is kind of weird for you know. For me, it's like I don't, I don't, I don't have all of these answers. You know what I mean? And and it's kind of, I, I, you know. So one thing. So I sat down with Brandon the other day, 
and we just got a chance to talk about writing and some of the work that I've been doing. We don't got to talk about my broken home. We don't got to talk about the gun, uh, guns I had. We don't have to talk about these things because I've been working really hard to not get away from it, but to not make it about me. It's right. not about me. It's about the work that we need to do to effectively help a lot of these young people not make some of the mistakes that I've made and go down different paths. But no, you're right. Like so many people from so many different places are still stuck on, Oh my gosh. Like you did this and you did that. Yeah. And I'm like, yo, that's, that's, that's like, that story's over with. Like, let's, 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 let's move forward. Yeah. Like I I was honestly like kind of afraid for you when I first like learned about what you were doing. Cause I was just like, I see where this could head. I've seen people like every time he gets introduced, the former drug dealer. Every time. The former drug dealer <laughs> who redeemed himself and became a respectable citizen. But I had to add that to my bio or something. Yeah. It's like, like right between Hopkins and this is Artifact. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was, I was like vicariously being annoyed for you. It was like, what the fuck? Like, he was a drug dealer that wasn't your complete tag of who you are. So. Yeah, no, it's 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 frustrating because I want to get I want to get to a point where um again I don't I have no like want to be I don't want to be some type of celebrity I don't want to be some type of you know I don't want to be a guy who's like you know you know all like famous I I want to be a person who just serves and, and does work and I just want to work I want to write I just want to write like I want to get past that but again as you as you you know as you see. Like when you're trying to sell a book in a project, it's like they pick you apart and they use everything they can to make the story look more sexy. Like, mm-hmm. oh my God, like, you know, he lived on the edge and, mm-hmm. you know, and now he, and now he's just, and now he, he bought a backpack and he's a backpack writer, you know, <laughs> like he's on the path to righteousness. And, you know, like again, I understand why they do what they got to do, but I just, I just want to write, man. I don't want to, I don't want to be, I don't want to be the, uh, I don't want to be a hot shot. I just want to write. <laughs> right, because sitting in a room and, and like really studying craft and shit, you know, like oh, I'm I'm sitting there studying Joseph Mitchell or something. That that's not a great way to sell a book yeah. for for the people who who yeah. are trying to to sell that stuff. And so they they try to, um, but I mean, and, and it's also fascinating because you you write about your past a lot, and um, you know, I, I think we were talking one time about the and, and I think this this insight came from you, but the the essay about gentrification where you're sitting in the food market at yeah. the beginning with those dudes is really like this anxiety is in the piece about like the gentrification of yeah. you like these dudes are who are trying to gentrify everything else are also like so so it's really this weird being torn between like oh yeah this you're a product now a novelty uh, uh um and and it seemed like in that essay especially like you have your anxiety of dealing with that as, as part of what that piece is about yeah, I don't even have, you know, sometimes I feel like I don't have any direction. This is why I feel like I had to move to a place where I don't take an interest in my surroundings as much as I take an interest on the people who I directly want to impact. And that's a win for me because if I listen to all of these things that I hear in these meetings and with these TV, I think, I don't know if we were talking about this the other day, but um, I did a lot of interviews doing Uprise, but I turned down a lot. I turned down the bulk of them because a lot of those people were playing. And I'm like, yo, why are you playing? Like, you saw what was going on out there. Like, how can you look at this as, like, a joke? You know, so I only wanted to um, talk to people who wanted to hear the whole story and wanted to talk about the systemic issues just so the broader audience who was watching it can see. Like, use my platform for that. But 
Yeah, when it comes to like the hot shots and the big wigs in this city and all these people running for mayor and the phone calls I get about, you know, endorsements and backing campaigns and even like one about writing speeches, it's all weirdo for me. Like it's not a world that I want to be a part of. Um, I don't want to make enemies because it's not even that's a facade. It's not real. So I don't want to make enemies, but at the same time, I don't want to play that game. I just, you know, I would be cool, like, writing my little books, writing my little articles, and maybe doing something connected with the school system. That's probably not going to happen. Um, I'm too too black for these HBCUs and too risky for some of the white schools. So it's like I won't get that. And then people in the school system, some of them want to rock with me, then some of them, like, but it's like, uh, it becomes, you know, I have meetings to set up meetings and it's, I don't have time for like, yeah. like, Oh, not even have, I don't have the patience to deal with like going in that way. So it's, I'm definitely in a weird place in, especially since I don't want to leave Baltimore and, and I, there's other places I can teach, but I, I kind of want to stay here. I don't know if that's going to happen, but, um, I, I'll figure something out, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a weird place to be in. This is really weird place to be in. Especially since a year, you know, a year before last, nobody even cared. You know, I, nobody cared. Nobody, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you were talking about working with kids, and and we've talked before about wanting to, um, you know, that, that you want to start finding kids and and helping them learn the craft and helping them learn reporting and and what you're doing is is that something you're you're the project you're doing with that that you're ready to talk about yeah yeah i'm working with three kids right now we don't have a title um initially we were going to call it the Baltimore writers project but collectively we agreed that that's not cool enough that name only really came it only came from it's just like the federal writers project it's a way to preserve the history of this city so i got two high school kids right now um i'm paying them both a stipend of a thousand dollars and for that thousand dollars they have to produce 10 stories um some can be written some can be filmed they're using my camera um i'm about to get a um I'm about to get a 6D. I have a Nikon D7000, so um, you know we'll be using them to shoot it HD. We have a website where you can where where we're gonna compile these interviews, and hopefully the website picks up after we complete the project and people start to upload their own stories. And um, I'll have some students curate them, but it's gonna be a go-to place for people who want to know anything about the city, not from. Um, just the perspective of people who've been here for 40, 30 years, but even some of the new people, it's going to be like, we're going to compile interviews and hopefully some of you guys are interviewed for some of the students. That would be cool too, Mm -hmm. but we're going to compile these interviews um, where people sit down and just tell their own narratives, you know, first person narratives about whatever they went through, you know, in their own lives living here. And um, we'll chop them down some and we're just going to let them build on the website. So I think, I think it's, I think it's going to be cool. Um, I'm looking forward to that, and that's the type of work I want to do. And I was able to get support from um, One Baltimore, which is which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's real cool. That's a, uh, and I mean, like Devin Allen is is doing a similar thing with taking photographs. So we really, and then you know, with like Lawrence starting True Laurels, like it, that's one of the great things about the scene in the city is how people don't just wait for someone to do shit. It's it's like let's just do it. And you can't, you can't. <laughs> you it never happened. You'll be waiting forever, man. <laughs> Ever. You'll be waiting forever. <laughs> It's like out of necessity. It's not. It's just like a natural reaction. It's not even like I need to do this. It's just like I didn't think anybody was gonna help me. So help is a bonus. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. A, it's a bonus. It's kind of weird to even get offered help. Like even dealing with. Um, it's like you have this distrust because nobody ever helps you. It might be like the uh, a bottom of a complex. But you know what? It's cool because like. Like, we get to create the culture. You know yeah. what I mean? We get to create the culture. Like, you know, 
if you want to publish somewhere, you know, you can hit me. If you want to publish somewhere, you can, if I want to publish somewhere, I've hit you and yeah. I've hit you and I've hit you. So it's like, right. we, we're like, we're creating something brand new that I don't know if any of us have ever benefited from. And this is like, and this this is great. Like, it enhances, you know, everything from it connects worlds and enhances social relations, and it it makes us all more complete. And we're all going to get more successful just by having that mentality. Um, I'm not the only writer. I'm not the only person that can write about the issues that I write about. I'm not the only guy. And how can I ever see that reality if I'm not creating those plugs? Um, Before I published with Salon, I didn't get help from anybody. Like, I knew writers personally. Um, Um. really really well and i've worked with them on their projects and i've written portions of their projects and never got one plug right. never got one plug and i wrote portions of their book and then some of my language made a mistake and slipped up and ended up in their books and i never got one plug so you know i take that experience and that you know that that disgusting type of mentality and and, and how that made me feel and i transfer that energy into something positive and share connections with other people yeah, so what what did it feel like to actually put the book together? Like, I mean, even you writing in general, you're saying that <clears throat> coming into it, you, you never planned on writing. So it just, what does that feel like to actually have a book now? It feels like I made the NBA or something. Yeah. Like, it's a great feeling. Like, I can't even explain it, uh, which is weird for a writer to say. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's an amazing feeling because even when um, when David talked about the founder of Salon first approached me with the project, you know, I was like, these essays, you know, these essays, like, I can write some new ones. People read these already. And he was like, well, write some new ones and then, you know, but put some of these in the book because they're important. And people don't know you. Like, yeah. maybe you might be, people know you in your city, but, like, I'm out here in the Bay Area. We don't know D. Watkins. I'm out, you know, like, with well, I'm all these different places where people should read some of these things. So, you know, um, you, you need to definitely add a, the bulk of these to the project because these are stories that people need to hear that people um, that would like help and, and that would be a good thing. So initially I wasn't all, I wasn't really down, but you know, he kind of told me or gave me some reasons why he think it would be a great idea. And um, I was already writing a cook up anyway. So he kind of made my job a little bit easier, right. but um, you know, I still had to, I still wrote some new ones and I still had to, had to get it together, but it felt, it feels great. Like I feel super lucky because it's, it's it's not easy publishing a book um uh, people i don't know if people know this or not but i've been getting denied for years like i started trying to sell cook up my agent um barbara and i we were trying to sell cook up since so this is 2015 i think she first went out with cook up in like early 2013 or maybe like like late 2012 like long time like i have like way before i ever wrote for salon or anywhere like i have mm-hmm. i have a stack of rejection letters like shack's height Right. So, you know, like, it's not like, it's not like a new journey for me. I've been getting rejected for a long time, so I'm really happy that somebody, you know, two places wanted to work with me. Yeah, writers always seem like some kind of fucking overnight success when it's like years and years of no one cares at all what you're doing. The, but you get the best rejection letters ever, man. He's, it's just, that's a talent. Like, I think they have to write them really well so that writers don't, more writers don't kill themselves. Like, the rejection letters are so good. Like, they're so good. Just enough to make you keep writing, but just enough to tell you that I don't want you. Right. <laughs> so this is a new imprint that this book's on, right? And, and um, the founder of, of Salon has, has, and you're on there with, like, you're one of, like, four or five authors, and, and they're all, like, yeah, fucking I, huge. I don't know how I made, I don't know how I made the list, um, but I have to believe 
somewhere inside myself that I belong there. I don't know how I made the list. It's what I said because when he first told me, it's like um, Daniel Ellsberg and um, Rebecca Solnit and um, Bobby Kennedy Jr. I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> you know, like seriously, like I don't think you know. But he was basically from his perspective. Um, you know, just because their work is not like my work, it's these are all ideas and perspectives that are rare to the publishing world and in general and just things that need to be heard. So that was his justification for it. And then my book was supposed to come out third. And when I started doing all the work during the uprise, he decided to just jump it all the way up and make it like the initial, like first launch of hot books, like their first, their first actual book. And um, if it does well, it's going to be cool because not only would I get an opportunity to write another one, but I'll have the clout to be able to say, look, I have a friend such and such who's a great writer. You should work with him. And it's, these are, and these are the type of plugs that I can make and I can share. Right. Cause again, I'm not, I have no fetish or no want or no need to be the, you know, I'm the, and, and, and I hear this. That's why I, I read, I be, you know, everything you say makes so much sense to me because I hear this around this town. I'm the only black tenured professor at something, something university. And I'm like, you think that's cute? Like, <laughs> you think that's cool? Like, yo, I want a job. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's actually depressing. Yeah, it's sad, but people people wear that as a badge of honor, you mm-hmm. know. And I don't, I don't. It's nothing honorable about that for me. Like, you guys share plugs and connections, and and I, like I said, this room is a place where you know we've done that. So I think, um, I think it's a great thing. I, I, I'm optimistic. I have to be. Aqua silence. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, optimism's a hard emotion for writers to deal with. It's like, oh, shit. <laughs> the world's always like in there. I mean, one of the things that we, we all have some experience with is the difference between, um, you know, writing personal essays, writing your the cookups a memoir. Um, you know, Lawrence, you've written about like listening to music with your your kid, and but then we all do reporting and stuff too. And and when you when you write about your your life as opposed to writing about someone else. Does it feel like, for me, it feels like a totally different thing because I'm completely, if I'm writing about myself, it's like, I don't trust my memory. I don't trust, <laughs> but, and I don't necessarily trust the other guy's memory, but at least it's on him. If he's telling me, fact checkers and documents, but like, how, how does that feel for you? The, the crafts of, of writing about yourself versus, uh, you know, writing about do going and reporting. You've, you've been going and, and, following people around in new Orleans recently and doing some, some real hardcore reporting. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about that. Like I want to become a better reporter. Like I want to become, I feel like I'm a student. So it's like, even like when I read your stuff, when I read anybody, you know, when I read your stuff, like I'm, I'm a student, like I'm learning. Um, I get, I get, um, you know, I get tips from Julie, Julie Schauber that she's not at the sun anymore. I get tips from Brett McKay who used to be a city paper. Like I'm a student, like I'm, um, Pamela Weintraub and Aeon's taught me so much. So I'm, I'm, I'm learning that as far as myself, I think, um, the most important thing in memoir for me is emotional truth. It's impossible to remember everything, you know, it's impossible to remember what happened, you know, word for word, every conversation, but you know how you felt after that conversation. If somebody was murdered, you might not get the events like a hundred percent accurate, but you know what happened that night, you know, um, if we all left this room right now and, you know, we went to go in our different little circles to talk about what went down tonight, you know, um, Lawrence might think about what went down with, um, you know, when he switched from New York rap to down South, mm-hmm. 
Brandon might talk about um, you know what happened with the up, what happened with the protests earlier. Baynard might talk about um, you know how I get on this list of these people. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it's like we all might take different things from this conversation, but at the same time, you know the, the only thing that really matters is 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 is, is how these certain events made you feel and how can you display that in the writing so that's that's the best way to do it and um i even have like a um a disclaimer in the book that kind of introduces that idea um talking about cook up it's like you know these these this is to the best of my memory um and my key focus was that emotional truth that you know dealing with the loss of my brother dealing with not really knowing where i fit in that finding something that i thought i wanted to do and didn't want to do and then finding a different world where i thought i fit in and didn't fit in and then how i you know figured out that this is not gonna happen for me so i just need to take advantage of whatever situation i'm in and rock with it <laughs> well hey when is the uh the release party for this when are when are you having the launch event on the 8th September 9th at Union Baptist Church. Um, it's the same place where Colts had his big event at. I don't think as many people would come out that came out for the Colts event, but I do think it, I think it will be nice though. I think it's going to be cool. I think it's going to be, um, a, a great mix of people. A lot of people who reached out to me about the event, uh, you know, they range from street dudes to church people to, um, old white people to the, like the whole Charles Village type area, like all these different types of people reached mm -hmm. out. So I think it's going to be people who have never ever been in a room with certain types of people, and I think I think that's a step in a positive direction. Well, cool. This is the uh, the second episode of the City Paper Podcast. We hope to have them more regularly than we have, and uh, between the first one and this one. Um, and so thanks, guys, so much for coming. Again, we have Lawrence Burney, City Paper contributor, and True Laurels founder and editor, uh, Brandon Soderberg, managing editor, art, uh, music editor, and film editor at City Paper, and Dee Watkins, also a contributor to the City Paper and um, author of the forthcoming Beast Side and the Cook-Up. Thanks a lot, y'all. Thanks.